This is from last week. How many of you need this because you forgot to bring it? Yes, okay, and Garth has 100 of them. So, <laughs> But don't let that make you lazy. All right. Uh, Garth, could I have one, incidentally? <laughs> All right, if you could hold your, uh, hold your hand up quietly. And I'm going to take the first five minutes here and review from last week. Oh, it is so hard from first grade on. Holding your hand up and keeping your mouth shut is really hard. <laughs> same time, do it at the same time. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to go forward. You keep your hand up if you need one of these handouts, the canon of scripture. Well, this is really important. Do we have do we have the correct writings in this or not in this book? Uh, are there some books in here that don't belong? That shouldn't be part of scripture? Or are we missing some secret books that somebody kept out so we wouldn't know what they said? That claim pops up again and again, and of course it's one of the central ideas in Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, that these New Testament writings we have were not the real story of Jesus. The real story of Jesus was suppressed by the church, the Catholic church especially, wanted to keep all these true stories hidden, and so they just gave us these other things. And in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, and under the under uh, under Constantine, the the church uh, put these new books into place, but they're not the true ones. Well, what do you think about that? Is that how do we answer that? And of course, the Mormons come along and say they've got extra books uh, uh, that uh, the Prophet Joseph Smith had, and uh, those should be added in addition to Scripture. Well, what do we answer to all of that? Last week we spent on the question of the Old Testament canon, and so I'm just going to quickly click through those slides, but uh, not talk about them in detail. Um, but we said this, the canon is the list. The word canon means the list. Canon is the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. And we shouldn't underestimate the importance of it because these are the words by which we nourish our spiritual lives. To add or subtract from God's word uh, would be to prevent God's people from obeying him fully. And we talked about the Old Testament canon. First, we had the earliest collection of written words, uh, the Ten Commandments, which God himself wrote on two stone tablets, and they were the writing of God. And then, the, then so, that, so that we had this, and I'm going to draw this picture again because we'll add to it now with the New Testament. But the picture was that God himself started this collection of written words that were the very words of God. And that was the collection that's called the Ten Commandments that God himself gave those tablets to Moses on the mountain and people had them. And there was no question they're God's words. He wrote them, but they're written in Hebrew. So they're human words as well. And then Moses added some books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we had uh, Joshua. God told Joshua to add more. And so the, the, the prophets primarily recorded the deeds of the kings and added to the, to the books of scripture. And then there were other things added over time until... Historical writings, prophetic writings, wisdom writings, until 435 B.C., about, approximately 435 B.C., where the prophets came to an end with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and the history, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And then we looked at some of those Jewish writings outside the New Testament, or outside the Old Testament, after the time of the Old Testament, that talked about keeping... His, the historical documents of the Jews were kept, but like Josephus said in 95 AD, 
they weren't deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier writings because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. So the Jewish people understood that that was the collection of writings that were God's words. These other writings, the history books of the Maccabees and things like that, and the wisdom writings that were kind of like Proverbs, but called Ecclesiasticus or, or, or Sirach, uh, and some other st stories, Judith, Tobit, those stories of heroic uh, tales of faith of the Jewish people, those were kept, but the Jewish people didn't think them to be God's words. They just thought they were other writings. And so those, some of them went into what is now called the Apocrypha by the Roman Catholic Church. And we talked about that. Now, that was, that was the overview, and that was as far as we went last week. I'll go through these other. Moses wrote additional words, works, and um, then Joshua added to the words in the book of the law of God. Others in Israel, usually the prophets, wrote additional words. Samuel wrote. Samuel the seer, Nathan the prophet wrote, etc., always writing down, interpreting the events of history in the light of God's viewpoint, giving God's interpretation on what was happening to the kings and the people and the nations and the, and the armies and all of this. <clears throat> the prophets were writing that. So it grew until 435 B.C. with the completion of Malachi. Other writings by the Jewish people were not considered worthy to be included in the scriptures. And you have even in Maccabees, in the, in the apocryphal book of the Maccabees, uh, they didn't have a prophet around. They were waiting for a prophet to come and tell them what to do about this or that. Uh, they, the prophets ceased a long time ago. And so Josephus says, um, from Artaxerxes, that's the time of Esther, to our own time the complete history has been written, but it hasn't been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact, exact succession of the prophets. And he talks about the scriptures being just that collection of scriptures. And we talked about things in the Babylonian Talmud with that list of writings, uh, Tosefta, uh, other things from the Apocrypha, the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of these writings testifying <coughs> that there is a firm collection of Jewish writings, but they didn't include these books of the Apocrypha as scripture. They were just other historical materials. And of course, these weren't written in Hebrew. They were written in Greek. And so the Jewish people didn't count them part of their authoritative words of God. So, um, and there's no record of any dispute between Jesus and the Jews over the extent of the canon. Jesus and the New Testament authors quote as authority in the New Testament, which we're coming to later, they quote these books of the Old Testament over 295 times, approximately 295 times, and there are maybe a few more that are allusions or quotations. It's a little hard to tell because they're short. But they quote these 295 times, and they quote the Apocrypha zero times as the Word of God, which I think shows that they didn't count it to be the Word of God, even though they knew it was historical material and interesting. And we talked about some other things they quote, but they don't quote the Apocrypha. So the Apocrypha uh, books were not accepted by Jews or Jesus or New Testament authors as Scripture. And um, the Roman Catholic Church didn't officially declare the Apocrypha to be scripture until 1546 at the Council of Trent when they were responding to Martin Luther and his teachings on justification by faith alone and his teachings that there wasn't any such thing as purgatory and you shouldn't make offerings for the dead. And they got some of that out of the Apocrypha. So they decided, okay, the Apocrypha is scripture. So we concluded the writings of the Apocrypha should not be included as part of scripture. And they do contain teachings inconsistent 
with the rest of the Bible, especially on earning your salvation and on prayers for the dead and uh, things like that. Now we come to this new material, and that is, what about the New Testament canon? Picture yourself as a Jewish person um, living uh, in the land of Israel in the first century, and it's been 435 years, what they call the silence of heaven, it's been 435 years since any prophet appeared among you. No more Moses, no more Samuel, no more Jeremiah or Isaiah <clears throat> telling you the words of God. There was probably a sense of abandonment. Why is God not speaking to us anymore? And they're waiting and they're waiting. How long is 435 years? That'd be like waiting since 1570 for us. 70, you know, 40 to 70 years. I mean, you know, that's many, many generations. So it's like us. <clears throat> I don't know, did anybody remember anything that happened in 1570? <laughs> I won't ask for volunteers. Uh, so that's a long time. And you're wondering, has God forgotten us forever? All of a sudden, one day, someone comes running down the street, pounds on the door of your house and said, a prophet has appeared. And he's out at the River Jordan, and he's baptizing people, telling them that the Messiah is coming. The prophet is John the Baptist. All of a sudden, after 435 years or so, over 400 years, the people of Israel hear that there's, there's another prophet that has appeared on the scene, and God is once again speaking to us. Can you imagine the excitement? All Jerusalem went out to hear him. They preached a gospel of repentance saying that one was coming after him. And he was sent to say, prepare the way of the Lord. And so there's not only the prophet is coming, but then he's saying the Messiah himself is following soon after. And then, and then he sees Jesus coming. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And there's tremendous excitement. So now, John the Baptist introduces Jesus. Jesus has his earthly ministry. He begins going about teaching. And you know, there's something very unique about Jesus' teaching. The Old Testament prophets said, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, I say to you. But I say to you. So he's teaching on his own authority, and I think that's another, it's one of many, many indications that he is himself God. He's not just a prophet speaking for God. He is speaking the very words of God when he speaks. What we have then in the New Testament is the story of Jesus' life recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the book of Acts, it starts out and says, it's written by Luke, who also wrote Acts, and it says in the first book, I told you all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is in Acts, He's telling what Jesus continues to do and teach through the spread of the church as the gospel is proclaimed. And then the epistles, all these epistles from Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, all these letters to the church, all those epistles really interpret and apply the life of Jesus and his teachings to the church. And then you have the book of Revelation, which is... It starts out, the first sentence, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show what must uh, take place. And so that is also a revelation that Jesus Christ is giving with regard to the future. 
So what we have here is it's recording Jesus' life and teachings, and then this is interpreting interpreting and applying it to the church, to the life of Jesus. And as a whole, then, we could say the revelation that the New Testament is the story of Jesus Christ. I don't think anybody in the world would want to contradict me to say that is what the New Testament is about. It's about Jesus Christ. So here's how it came about. The New Testament canon. The New Testament canon begins with the writings of the apostles who were given the ability from the Holy Spirit to recall and interpret accurately the words and deeds of Jesus. So in John 14, Jesus promised, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. This is right at the end of his life. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, now here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So they were walking with him. They were living with him. They were hearing him teach. And the Holy Spirit was going to come and supernaturally superintend and direct their memories so that when they recalled what Jesus said, they would do it accurately. The Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that I've said to you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he said to his disciples, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is promising to his disciples a special ministry of the Holy Spirit to remember and then um, uh, and then understand what Jesus taught. Now, the, Old Te the New Testament, the, the Jesus' disciples became the apostles. They, that was the other word that Jesus gave for them. And they claim an authority equal to that of the Old Testament prophets. So what we have here in the Old Testament is first Moses, who was thought to be the first and greatest prophet, and then Samuel, and, and all these other prophets recording the history of the kings, and then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, those prophets all writing. But now we get over here, and when the apostles write, they don't say, it isn't like Peter, a prophet of Jesus Christ to the church, or Paul, Paul doesn't say, when I open up to, um, to 1 Corinthians, Paul, called by the will of God to be a prophet of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that. What does it say? Paul, called by the will of God to be an... I don't know what, what name they call themselves when they're writing. Not prophet, not disciple. Sometimes he calls himself servant, but there's a, there's a more important title that has authority over the churches. Paul, an uh, apostle. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And uh, Philippians, um, no, Philippians, he called himself servant. So, oh, Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men, but nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father to the churches of Galatia. So what is happening is the Old Testament was written by prophets, by and large, but in the New Testament, it's the apostles who write this, um, by and large. And so the apostles claim an authority equal to the Old Testament prophets. Second Peter 3, 2, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Look at the parallel. Peter says, what, do you sh what should you med meditate on? What should you build your life on? Well, the holy prophets, 
and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. See the parallel? Prophets and apostles. <clears throat> and with his wife's knowledge, um, this is Ananias, kept back some of the proceeds, laid at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for your part, part, yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Um, to lie to the apostles was to lie to the Holy Spirit, and Ananias fell down dead. Um, that was an awesome authority that he had, uh, that the apostles had. And, and Paul says, uh, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So Paul's saying when he teaches, he even has his very words given by the Holy Spirit. And if the Corinthians didn't like that or didn't agree with him, it was too bad for them. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Um, this is plural in Greek, the things, and I think it refers to the whole of 1 Corinthians. Um, not all translations bring out that plural. Sometimes they say what I am writing to, but it really is plural. And I think he's saying, hey, uh, you guys think you're spiritual. Well, step one in being spiritual is I'm writing a command of the Lord. A command of the Lord. That's like the Ten Commandments. Paul is claiming an incredibly strong authority for his teaching. So already Peter and Paul are saying that these writings of the apostles are equal in authority to the Old Testament scriptures. They're not just like the books of the Maccabees or something like that. Uh, Paul talks about seeking proof that Christ is speaking in me in 2 Corinthians. And in fact, it's very interesting that a couple of places we have New Testament authors speaking about the writings of some other New Testament authors. Peter, no doubt, had a very important role in uh, among the apostles in the early church. But the question is, what did Peter think of Paul's authority? Well, 2 Peter 3.16, you know John 3.16. <clears throat> this is 2 Peter 3.16. This is also good. It's very important. Um, our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters. Now, that when Peter can say that, Peter's writing fairly late, he's recognizing that there's already a collection of Paul's letters. People are saving them. All, in all his letters, okay? And they and he's writing, <clears throat> and he's saying, well, you guys know about Paul's letters. So it must be there was a collection that was circulating. There are some things in Paul's writings, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Now, he doesn't say they twist the things in Paul's writings as they twist the scriptures. That would be putting Paul's writings outside of scripture. He says they, they twist Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. Other than what? Other than Paul's writings. Does that make sense? Are you following? It, it has to imply that Paul's writings are scripture and then they're also twisting the other scriptures. That is important because the Greek word that there is the Greek word that is there said to be scriptures. This, that word, scriptures, that is the Greek word. It doesn't show up very well. Graphe. It's, it's the Greek word graphe. It looks, it looks like this. In Greek, and you know, we would spell it G-R-A-P-H-E, graphe. 
That word is used 51 times in the New Testament. And 51 out of 51 times, it refers to the Old Testament writings. That's enough times to say this is a technical term. Uh, it's enough times to say this is a specialized word. Scriptures mean the word of God. And Peter is here saying, Paul's writings are scripture and then there's other scriptures. So Peter is looking at Paul's letters as a collection and saying they are scripture. And scripture in this technical sense of the very words of God. I said 51 out of 51 times they refer to the Old Testament scriptures. That is true, except for these two verses where they also include the New Testament writings. So here's one, other scriptures. And then what does Paul think about some of these writings? Paul, 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and here we have the word graphe again, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 25, 4. And here's the other thing the scripture says, the laborer deserves his wages. Where is that in the Old Testament? The laborer deserves his wages. Well, knowing the Old Testament as well as you do, you immediately say, hmm, I can't remember that in the Old Testament anyplace. <laughs> and you are right. The laborer deserves his wages is not in the Old Testament anyplace. But Paul says the scripture says the laborer deserves his wages. Where is it? It's in Luke 10, 7. And it's word for word in Greek, axios ha ergates, to misthuatu, worthy is the worker of his labor. It's word for word in Greek, exact quote from Jesus' words in Luke 10:7. So here we now have Paul writing to Timothy and quoting Luke as scripture. He's saying that this gospel, Luke, is the word of God. And Peter's saying all of Paul's writings are the word of God. So we're seeing evidence that what Jesus promised was fulfilled. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would guide them and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus had said. And now it's happened. And it's being written down as scripture. Now, someone might say, how did Paul know about Luke's gospel? How could he know about that? How could Paul know anything about what Luke wrote? As scripture. How did Luke? <laughs> yeah, well, just hold on a minute on that. <laughs> did Paul have anything to do with Luke? That's the question. Hmm? Yes, in the book of Acts, Ken, Luke traveled with Paul. And there are some sections. In fact, Luke is writing the book of Acts. And there are some sections in Acts where instead of saying, they did this, they did that, he starts saying, we did this, we did that, we did this, we did that. It's called the we section in Acts. And, uh, and then a little bit later they did this. So Luke is traveling with Paul. And I think what is happening is Luke had done his historical research, maybe continued to do it, but sometime while he was traveling with Paul, he was writing the Gospel of Luke with all the records of what Jesus did. And I imagine it wasn't just in connection with Paul. I think there were others uh, of the circle of apostles who were with him and kind of saying, yes, that's right, that's what I remember, that's accurate, that's true. And the Holy Spirit was directing all that process. But remember, Luke has two books, Luke and Acts. At the end of Acts, we've got the very last chapter of Acts. It's still talking about Paul. He's in Rome preaching the gospel openly and unhindered, though he's in prison in Rome. And so, yes, 
Paul. Luke wrote this while he was traveling, or before or while he was traveling with Paul, and this as well. And so now Paul knows it well. Maybe he has a copy of it. And uh, he's quoting it as scripture. So we've got strong evidence. Not only do the apostles like Paul say, what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. They're, they, and some, you know, get liberal scholars saying, oh, they didn't have any idea that their words were going to be in the Bible. Well, sure they did. What I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. And, uh, and then uh, they're talking about each other's writings. They're saying we're calling this scripture. So I think that's a pretty strong argument, that they're, that they're understanding that there are writings that go alongside the Old Testament writings as having equal authority. If we accept the arguments for the traditional views of authorship of the New Testament writings, then we have most of the New Testament in the canon because of the direct authorship by the apostles. So, Matthew, an apostle. John, an apostle. Um, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, um, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Philemon, all Paul's epistle, Paul's an apostle. Hebrews, wait a minute. James, an apostle. Uh, Peter, an apostle. The epistles of John. Okay, so we get most of the New Testament. But you say, wait a minute, what about Mark? He wasn't one of the twelve. Uh, he wasn't really considered an apostle. What about Luke and Acts? Well, Mark was traveling with Peter, and it's not in the Bible itself, although Peter at the end of 1 Peter says something about uh, someone sent, she who is in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. That is, Mark is with him. And right there, early history of the church is it's Mark wrote down the gospel that Peter preached. So I think what happened was, as Peter went around preaching, Mark was recording the gospel. And then Peter read it over and said, yes, these are the true teachings that, uh, that are the teachings of Jesus, and uh, these are what is to be accepted as scripture. So I think we have the apostolic authority of Peter endorsing Mark, and I think Luke with Paul. What about Jude? It's a small book. It's got some funny things in it unusual things. It wasn't accepted as early in the church because he quotes first Enoch. It's, it's another Jewish writing that was out there. But it was eventually accepted in virtue of the author's connection with James and the fact that he was the brother of Jesus. And so um, there was a little bit of a vague history. We don't know all the details, but Jude was eventually accepted, again, because he was um, either an apostle or connected closely with Peter and James and thought that the apostles endorsed his, uh, his writing. Now what about Hebrews? That leaves Hebrews. That's the big question. Who wrote Hebrews? Many urged acceptance of Hebrews based on an assumed Pauline authorship. That is, many people thought that Paul wrote Hebrews. And some people today still think that Paul wrote Hebrews. However, many others rejected Pauline authorship. And Origen, one of the great leaders and teachers in the early church, 254 AD, that's very early. Origen... In his writings, he says, who wrote the epistle of the Hebrews? Some say Paul, some say Apollos, some say Barnabas. But in truth, only God knows. That's very early, 254 AD. He didn't question that it was scripture, but he said, only God knows who wrote it. I've taught Hebrews a number of times. When I look at the book of Hebrews, the, the style of writing, the way sentences are put together, you can see it even in English, and it's, it's very clear in Greek. 
it just is a different kind of argumentation, a different style of writing. He doesn't identify himself at the beginning like Paul does in all his other epistles. So I don't, I don't think that Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, I don't think anything crucial is at stake there. But um, in the early church, some thought it was Paul's, but others didn't know. But its acceptance was due to the intrinsic qualities of the book. In other words, you say, I think thousands of people have said, in the early church, or hundreds of people said, does Hebrews belong in the canon? It's so good. Who could leave it out? <laughs> John Calvin said, we don't know who wrote it, but the glory of Christ shines forth from every page of this epistle. I mean, and I don't know if that's been your experience. It's certainly been mine. You read Hebrews and you say, my goodness, what an incredibly, unusually wonderful book this is. These are the words of God. And so there's something about the unique qualities of the book um, that must have led to its acceptance in the early church. I suppose historically there were apostles saying, yes, this is scripture. Maybe some of them, someone saying, yes, I wrote it in scripture. I don't know. Ultimately, then, how do you know what belongs in the New Testament? For a book to belong to the canon, it's absolutely necessary that it have divine authorship. It has to be uh, human authors writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And it had to have been approved by the apostles for preservation and inclusion in the canon. When people were wondering about Jude, when they were wondering about Hebrews, there were still apostles alive. And we don't have any historical evidence about you know, the apostles that were alive saying, yes, that's scripture or not. But I think they must have or the church wouldn't have accepted it. So um, where does that leave us? Well... Um, In, in one sense, uh, people had faxed and Xerox copies all around to each other, and they all signed off on them. <laughs> um, but it wasn't that fast. No fax machines, no Xerox machines, no email, um, no typewriters even, copying by hand. And we've got the church spread throughout the Roman world. So for all these epistles, the large ones and the small ones, to go from this church to that church to this church to that church, and all these churches accept them, and it was a long process. And <clears throat> the first list that we have that includes all the books in the New Testament is 367 A.D. Now you're probably saying, oh, I wish there was an earlier one than that. Me too. <laughs> but it's just what it is. Um, I'm going to tell you, before 367 A.D., you have many, many early writers quoting the books of the New Testament as scripture, all of them in various places, and so that's other kinds of evidence. And there's some earlier lists, but not all. But not Jude didn't circulate as fast as all of them, and some of the other shorter epistles. But here's Athanasius in Alexandria, the bishop, writing in Easter in 367 A.D. He says there are four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Afterward, the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles called Catholic, seven, that is, of James, one, of Peter, two, first and second Peter, of John, three, first, second, third John. After these, one of Jude. In addition, there are 14 epistles of Paul. Uh-oh. 14. He's going to think Hebrews is Paul, but we'll find out. Written in this order. The first to the Romans, then two to the Corinthians, after these to the Galatians, next to the Ephesians, the Philippians, Colossians, after these two to the Thessalonians, and that to the Hebrews. And again, two to Timothy, one to Titus, and lastly to Philemon, and besides the Revelation of John. That's the whole New Testament. 
And um, uh, there's a council in Carthage, uh, just in 397, that also affirms that list. Now here's uh, Athanasius. I'm going on just in the next paragraph or two. Athanasius says, but for greater exactness, I add this also, writing of necessity, that there are other books besides these not indeed included in the canon, but appointed by the fathers to be read by those who newly join us and those who wish for instruction in the word of godliness. That'd be like saying, um, My Utmost for is Highest by Oswald Chambers. That's a good book to read. Okay, or, or Swindoll's Sermons or, you know, whatever. You know, other, other things like that. Um, uh, so he said there are some other books to read. The Wisdom of Solomon, The Wisdom of Sirach. <clears throat> that's part of the Apocrypha. And Esther, and I think what he means there is additions to Esther in the Apocrypha. And Judith and Tobit, those are the, and the teaching of the apostles, that's the Didache, which I'll talk about in a minute. And the shepherd, shepherd of Hermas, that's in New Testament times, but not from the Bible. The former, my brethren, are included the canon, that's the earlier group, but the latter being merely read. Nor is there in any place a mention of apocryphal writings, but these are an invention of heretics who write them when they choose. I think those are other writings, probably what we today call the pseudepigrapha. So he's saying these are not part of the canon. But, so you say 367. Oh, come on, Wayne. Can't you get any evidence earlier than that? 367, that's so late. But now here, there is something else that's very important. That is, Book of Revelation ends 90 AD. Right after that, we have some other writings. 95 AD, we get the Epistle of Clement. 110 AD, we get the writings of uh, uh, Ignatius. And then I'm going to talk about something in 170 AD. These are close. Now look at First Clement. He is uh, an elder or a bishop in the church at Rome. And he's writing to Corinth. And he already looks back on the apostles, and he doesn't think of himself as an apostle. He's different. He's less. So he says, our apostles knew that there would be strife for the title of bishop. They appointed those who have been already been mentioned. And they said other men should approve to their ministry. He's writing to Corinth. The church at Corinth was wanting to kick out its elders and get a new elder board. And Clement is saying, hey, don't do that. The apostles chose these, and they had good judgment, so leave them. But look, he's looking back at the apostles. He's five years after the latest time we know the New Testament writings would be, and he's already saying, look back at the apostles. I'm not one of them. And he's a leader in the Church of Rome. Okay, he doesn't take the title apostle. Ignatius to the Romans, 110 A.D. I do not order you, as did Peter and Paul. They were apostles. I'm a convict. They were. He was in prison for his faith. They were free. I'm even now a slave. So again, it's the idea that the apostles are in the past, and they're looking back on them very, very early. Ignatius, again, I do not think myself competent as a convict to give you orders like an apostle. So um, uh, right away, they knew that those writings were different and the apostles were different. I'm going to mention 170 AD. I don't have it on the, uh, on the transparency on the slide. But there was a man named Tatian, and he wrote something called the D-I-A-T-E-S-S-A-R-O-N, Diatessaron. It means through four. And he put together the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in one long narrative, one long story, weaving them all together. And so right away, 170 AD, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, no other gospel. Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, the church only accepted these and imposed them in 325 AD. That's really bogus. You see, you, you already here have, looking back on the apostles, first Clement quoting some of the books in the New Testament, and you've got Tatian in 170 AD using those four books of the Gospels and nobody else. 
So, um, no, those are clear. Sometimes today liberal scholars suggest that other books are equal to the New Testament Gospels, like the Didache, that means teaching, or the Shepherd of Hermas, or the Gospel of Thomas. But these books are, there's a lot of strange stuff in them. I've spent quite a bit of time looking, working the Didache just for linguistic purposes and word purposes. Shepherd of Hermas, it is really painful to read through. It's got all these weird visions of this woman in black coming to this man and showing him this and that, and it's very strange. You don't want it in your Bible. <laughs> I had uh, I was sitting in my office at Trinity Seminary in, in the Illinois one day, and uh, the switchboard called. There's a reporter on the phone from the Minneapolis Star Tribune. She wants to know something about the Gospel of Thomas. Could you take the call? I said, sure. So she said, well, hello, what's your name? I told her. She said, well, no, we're hearing the Jesus Seminar. They're saying the Gospel of Thomas should be part of the scriptures, along with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. I, said, I have a Gospel of Thomas right here. You want me to read you a sentence from it? She said, okay. So I, I turned to the last sentence of it. <clears throat> and I read this. The Gospel according to Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, Lo, I shall lead her, so that I may make her a male, that she too may become a living spirit, remember, resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. And this reporter from the Minneapolis Star Tribune said, Oh. <laughs> I don't know where this stuff came from. It's just weird. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas, it doesn't really lay out a life of Jesus. It's just a whole bunch of collections of things that Jesus supposedly said. And um, there's other stuff like that. I, I, brought, I brought some of it. New Testament Apocrypha, Volume 1, and New Testament Apocrypha, Volume 2, by Henneke, H-E-N-N-E-C-K-E. -N -N -E -E. If you want to buy it and read some of it, you can. Uh, it's just strange stuff. It's stuff that was floating around. It, Christianity started to grow, and everybody wanted to get in the act, and they made up stuff. Uh, and so, um, <clears throat> here you go. When the boy Jesus was five years old, he was playing at the ford of a brook, and he gathered together into pools the water that flowed by and made it at once clean, commanding it by his word alone. And he made soft clay and fashioned from the clay twelve sparrows. And it was the Sabbath when he did this. There were also other children playing with him. <clears throat> now, when a certain Jew saw what Jesus was doing in his play on the Sabbath, he went at once and told his father, Joseph, See, your child is at the brook, and he has taken clay and fashioned twelve birds and profaned the Sabbath. In other words, making these clay birds was work. It was sin. And when Joseph came to the place and saw it, he cried out to him, saying, Why do you do on the Sabbath what ought not to be done? But Jesus clapped his hands and cried to the sparrows, off with you. And the sparrows took flight and went away chirping. The Jews were amazed when they saw this. In other words, what sparrows? <laughs> I didn't do any work. I didn't make any sparrows. You see, they're gone. Well, now, it's, it, my first reaction is, this is just stupid. And, and it's kind of, But my second reaction is, my heart is kind of grieved to read it. Because Jesus wasn't that way, disobedient and then destroying the evidence. And third, the Gospel of John tells me when Jesus changed water to wine, it was the first of his miracles. This, the first of his 
signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory in John 2. So he didn't do miracles when he was a little kid. And, and you get these other stories about Jesus playing games and somebody bumps into him and falls down and dies or something. You know, it's just, but it, it's, it's people making up just the product of their imagination. It's not the word of God. It's just strange. This is the infancy story of Thomas. So um, it's there. It's around. The church knew about it. They didn't take it as scripture. It's not scripture. Um, didn't have the, the authority of the apostles. There's another story. I guess I won't read you about John and the bedbugs. <laughs> he couldn't sleep, so he said, you bedbugs, leave the holy apostle. And so they watch, and all the bedbugs go over into the corner. And then when he wakes up in the morning after a good night's sleep, he said, all right, you can go back to your place. And they all march up into the bed. <laughs> well, there it is. So it's out. Inventive, creative people. Okay. Um, so where, where does that leave us on the New Testament canon? Should we expect more writings to be added to the canon? Oh, I, I want to say one more thing. I didn't bring this in, but it's with respect to Dan Brown and this bogus claim that the church imposed these writings for the first time in 325 A.D. I brought just, I guess I brought two volumes from what's called, it's a, it's a nine-volume collection, the Anti-Nicene Fathers. That's before Nicaea in 325 A.D. This is small print in English. Can you see it? It's thousands of pages of early church writings, early Christians' writing. Anti-Nicene means before 325 A.D., before Dan Brown said that the church took these books as scripture. And the reason I wrote this, I, I brought this is there are pages and pages and pages in the scripture index of, of where they quote Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all the way to Revelation. Pages and pages of index, thousands of quotation from these books, not from other books as scripture. Dan Brown is just bogus. It's just historically a laugh. It's, it's just, uh, but people believe it because they don't have to believe the Bible. And they don't have to accept the Bible's claims on them and they can make up their own religion. So should we expect, but all the, I, when I read that in the Da Vinci Code, I thought, I've got nine volumes worth of writings that quote our New Testament. Uh, no, and that's before the time you said this was the New Testament. I think that's uh, not a very good argument. Um, should we expect more writings to be added to the canon? Well, here I think is what is the answer. There's a finality to the revelation of God in Christ, and once this revelation has been completed, no more is to be expected. The apostles and their close companions report Christ's words and deeds and interpret them with absolute divine authority. Therefore, the canon is now closed. And the overview of that process is in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So the big picture on this, the big picture on this, is that the Old Testament is many parts, many ways, whether through David or Moses or Isaiah or all, many parts, many ways, and here the whole New Testament is the revelation in the Son. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
long ago, many parts, many ways, but now, at the end of the ages, he's spoken to us in his Son. And this revelation of Jesus Christ is the final and greatest revelation of God. That, to me, is the answer to Mormonism. Because Mormonism comes along and says, well, we have more revelation. Do you have a better revelation than Jesus? Do you have a better revelation of God than God's very Son? You see, it, there can be no greater revelation. And, and so the answer is, no. Jesus did not authorize any others than his apostles, and once that's recorded and interpreted, the canon is closed. Revelation 22 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life of the holy cities, which, which are inscribed in this book. That's a very strong warning. When I first read that, probably as a seven or eight-year-old during a boring sermon one Sunday morning, um, <laughs> I was sitting in my Baptist church in Wisconsin, I thought that meant the whole Bible. That was my first seven or eight-year-old reaction. As I kind of grew older and I realized that the words of the prophecy of this book re referred to Revelation, then I thought, oh no, I was mistaken. It just applies to the book of Revelation. And I think that's the right interpretation. But then I got older yet. And I thought, it's not an accident that this warning occurs in this book. And this book occurs here. It can't go anyplace else. Some of them you can put in different order. But Genesis, you have to put first because it's the beginning. And Revelation, you have to put last because it's the future. And so at the end of the last book, at the very end, chapter 22, here's a warning. And I think though it initially and primarily applies to the book of Revelation, I think that, that, that my seven-year-old seven instinct to say it means the whole book is probably a good, healthy spiritual instinct. And it's there for a purpose. How do we know we have the right book? Primarily, ultimately, I haven't talked about this much yet. Primarily, my confidence is in the faithfulness of God. He wants his people to have his word. And I think that this whole process of collecting and assembling and preserving the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament so we have the right one, I think that was ultimately overseen by God and his providence. And I trust him that he's preserved for us the right books. But we are individually persuaded by the work of the Holy Spirit as we read scripture. We understand it's God's word to it. And the historical data that I've just gone through, those are helpful in informing us and giving us additional confirmation. It's there that Mormonism falls down flat. It just got dozens and dozens of historical contradictions and inconsistencies and false claims about Jesus coming to North America and the and, uh, uh, people of the Indians being related to the Jewish people and all this isn't borne out by the DNA evidence, by any historical evidence, totally different from Scripture. But the historical data are very in helpful in informing us and, and confirm this. Are there other books that possibly deserve a place in the canon? No. No. Either they just, like First Clement, distinguish themselves from the canon, or, like Gospel of Thomas, they're just strange. Or are there any strong objections to any book currently in the canon? No. The canon of Scripture today is exactly what God wanted it to be. It will stay that way until Christ returns. And we can be thankful for that. Okay. A couple of minutes for questions. And then we'll have to clear out. Yeah. Um, John. Okay. Why don't we see the incredible outpouring of miracles like there was in Jesus' ministry in the book of Acts? Why don't we see that so much today? 
It's a complex question, John. Part of the answer is, um, I think there was a unique empowering of Jesus and the apostles. Part of the answer is our lack of faith. Uh, part of the answer is there are things like that occurring from time to time, and sometimes, uh, especially in third world countries, where there isn't this Western rationalistic unbelief mindset, um, and people have more faith, uh, they're seeing more of these things. That's a complex question. Good question. Rose. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Good question. The Muslims, they think Muhammad's more recent than Jesus. Yeah, but he's not better. <laughs> he's not the perfect revelation of God that's in the Son. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so I think what we have to claim is that the greatest revelation of God that he's going to give until the second coming is the revelation in the Son, and the New Testament tells about that. So I, I interrupted before you ended. <laughs> yeah. Well, we bear witness to the truth, and the Holy Spirit has to persuade what else? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This angel, well, angel Moroni. I don't think he was a good angel, to be honest. Um, that uh, appeared to Joseph Smith, or angel appeared to Muhammad. I think actually those were genuine spiritual events, but I do not think they were good spiritual events. I think it was a demonic deception. Right, and it's and that's what Mark's making a good point. These are inconsistent with the gospel. And, Paul says in Galatians, if anybody preaches a gospel different than the one I preached to, let him be cursed. Even I or an angel from heaven. So, um, yes, uh, Islam and, uh, and Mormonism are inconsistent with the gospel, the heart of the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ alone. Okay, good reason to reject. Last one, what's your name? Kristen. Called what? How wide the divide on Mormonism? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I disagree. Craig Blumberg is a friend, but uh, if but the statement that the canon is open in theory but closed in practice, I think is false. I think there's going to be no better record of the life of Jesus than anybody today is going to give. There's going to be no better interpretation of the life of Jesus than anybody's going to give. And I don't think anybody today has the authority from the Holy Spirit to act like an apostle and write the words of Scripture. What you see right here. Beginning of the early church, nobody claims the title of apostle after that. It's a special role. You had to have seen the risen Jesus with your own eyes and been specially appointed by him as an apostle. So, uh, yeah, Craig Blomberg, New Testament scholar at Denver. He's been a friend of mine for years, but he was quite widely criticized for what he wrote in that book. Yeah, and I, I don't agree. Next week, the gym. See you. <laughs>